So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. When they were when they were holding us up, you know, I'll never forget the other. You know, there there was, as you can imagine, there were a number of holding cells in 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 Afghanistan, Iraq, and some of them were fairly 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 sensitive areas where didn't want a lot of people to come in. But I'll never forget when McChrystal brought in Afghan senior Afghan army officials into this one holding cell and and showed him everything pretty much and said, listen, we need your help. We do not have enough native Pashto speakers to translate all this stuff. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, uh, mentor of mine, Steve Wazowski. Steve, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure, Jess. Thanks for having me. So I'm interested how you introduce yourself at this point. You know, you're retired from a very high level position at JP Morgan in in uh, the security side of things and you've got an extensive naval special warfare career you're an advisor over at Clearspeed how do you, how do you introduce yourself at cocktail parties now <laughs> well i tend to not talk about that the stuff that i've done unless of course there's a good reason for it unless there's you know it's a fellow seal or special operations person I talk more about my, you know, my kids and the latest the travel adventures that I've had, things like that. I don't talk, I don't, I don't volunteer a lot of information about, you know, the Navy or corporate security necessarily, but I'm more than willing to talk about it. So I introduce myself as a retired Navy guy who has lived overseas a lot in my life, who has two wonderful kids that are growing up in Southern California, who loves the beach and look forward to having a dog someday. <laughs> to play with it at Dog Beach. Those are, awesome. those are some of the things that I would mention. And was it, how long were you in the Navy? Is it 28 years? Is that right? Yeah, about 28. I, I went to college at, the, at a place in Maryland called the Naval Academy. So that's kind of like technically being in the Navy because we had to wear a uniform every day. We had a military ID card. So, but that doesn't count as, the, as 28. And then after I graduated from college, I spent about 28 years in the Navy. I could do that. And then what are some of maybe the, the more notable career highlights in, in the teams for you? Well, like you say, that you know, the teams refers to the SEAL teams. And I was in the SEAL teams for that, t- that amount of time. And, you know, I, I think one pretty interesting way to, cat- to, to categorize the service is pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Because pre-9-11, it was, it was fast-paced, unbelievable camaraderie, unbelievably high-speed training, 
but it was all really kind of, we were on alert for certain things and we were mostly training foreign, you know, our foreign allies, going to Europe, going to South America, going to the Western Pacific, and just having these things called uh, joint combined exchange training events all over the world. And then 9-11 happened. Well, before 9-11 was Desert Shield, Desert Storm. That was a pretty impactful thing for me because I was there on the ground August, early in the early days of August, 1990. And that was really my first intro to the Middle East, to Arab culture, to Islam. Huge impact and actually a huge of huge relevance to 9-11 and my deployments post 9-11 as well. But after 9-11, things took on a, an incredible level of seriousness and the game changed and people started getting killed and wounded and there was a whole different world in special operations. And the level of play was already high, but it took off under people like Stan McChrystal, Bill McRaven, and, and the staffs that they, that they commanded. And I was fortunate enough to work with and around them and for them on several deployments. So, so the noteworthy experiences for me usually occurred with my deployed teammates in some foreign country, both pre-9-11 and post-9-11. And then I would have to add to that, you know, living overseas with my kids and my family was also really great. I lived in Panama. I lived in Italy when I was a representative from the United States to one of the European units. And I lived in Germany for a while. And all of those places were really quite incredible. Those were all wonderfully noteworthy times in my life. Yeah. And, and where did you grow up? East Coast, born in Baltimore, went to high school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, then went, yeah. to, high, then went to college in Maryland at the, at the Naval Academy. Is there anything about, what, what do you feel like some of the advantages were about where you grew up or how you grew up that helped you prepare you for the career you've had? Well, I was pretty fortunate. I had good parents, good grandparents. My parents weren't military. My grandfather was in the Navy. I grew up outside a lot on a farm with my grandfather, always comfortable in the water swimming, comfortable outdoors, never, you know, we, we were outside all the time playing. And so it was a natural, and I was on sports teams growing up. I was very, you know, I was in the ocean a lot when I, and during the summer months. So when I heard about the seals, it was very interesting to me. You know, of course I wasn't mature enough necessarily to understand the gravity of what the seals were all about, the physicality and the, the few seals that I had met attracted me to it, their personality, their easygoing nature, their the perception of what I thought their jobs were. So the, so the transition from being a kid who was outside a lot, playing sports in the water, going to the Naval Academy into the, and then into the military, into the SEALs, was a, seemed like a very natural one. It wasn't that big a deal at the time. So not to make light of it, it was, you know, it was, it was a big training process to get in, but it was, it was pretty comfortable overall. Yeah. You know, something I want to talk about today is is some of the ways I feel like you really influenced me and, and a couple of our friends from Naval Special Warfare that we've got in common there and things that they've said about you when you weren't around. But I'm interested, early in your career, did you have any leaders that you feel like you really looked up to? Really? Yeah, there, to there were a few. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll name them. There was, a, there was a Navy guy. I, he was the executive officer of SEAL Team 5 when I was there. Rob, Rob Newsom knows him pretty well. His name is Rick Smethers. And he was this pretty non-standard guy, a little rough around the edges. You know, a lot of SEALs are rough around the edges, I guess. But he was, you know, he was the EXO of the team. He had come from a special mission unit, the elite forces uh, that we have in the Navy. And he's extremely down to earth and extremely common sense, no nonsense, good guy. 
he always, you know, he was a little bit older because he even, he, I think he was in Vietnam at the end of Vietnam and came in a little bit later and he was, you know, tall, slender guy, but God, he was just physically impervious to discomfort and he would do everything with us. He'd jump as skydive as much as he could with us and he's in the water. And I got to know him pretty well when I was a young junior officer at SEAL Team 5. And then I went back to the East Coast with him for a few years and worked with him further on the East Coast. And he, he left a lot of lasting impressions on me. The other guy that I have to mention is an Army at Green Beret, Army Special Forces colonel that I worked for in Panama in Central America named Kevin Higgins. And again, this guy was quiet, could put up with anything. You know, we had a boss who was an Army general, was a little bit of a unreasonable guy sometimes. And he would yell at this guy, Colonel Kevin Higgins, and he'd yell at him and, and Higgins would not. He would be polite and everything, but it would not face him one bit. And he was always out there with us, always just getting punished in the field, never complaining, never, you know, never pulling the Colonel card and, and opting out of, out of the hard stuff. And he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. So he, he showed me what it's like to be just a quiet, quiet, humble, professional under ridiculous amount of stress and never complain and get it done. Plus, you know, he's very, very Caucasian, very white guy from Detroit, Michigan, Golden Gloves boxer. And he spoke impeccable Spanish and he was really, really good with the natives. And during Just Cause in Panama, you know, he and his, his Green Berets, you know, they, they ran towns all over Panama and they were the mayor of the towns and they trained the police force and, you know, basically got these towns back up and, and running. And so he had this, he could go anywhere in Panama and somebody would know him and he would speak Spanish and he was just a really good example. So th those two guys, I think, are probably left huge lasting impressions along with, you know, I mentioned General Stan McChrystal, Admiral Bill McRaven. They're, they're role models in a lot of ways as well. Uh, let, let's do an example for each of those. What What's something from McChrystal and something from McRaven? McChrystal, you know, it's funny because you can read so much about it now and he's a fairly ubiquitous presence, Stan McChrystal is. But to see him at the time flatten the communications and build this global network, you know, there's a book that he wrote with a few other guys, Dave Silverman and uh, Chris Fussell called Team of Teams. Yeah, we had, we had Chris on the show and talked about it. Yeah. So I'm sure Chris did a good job of describing because Chris was, you know, Chris was right there. But I was, and Chris was there in, in the middle of, you know, working for Stan. I was kind of on the outsides in one of the supporting units watching this. And, you know, he didn't have, you know, Stan was running, you know, the premier unit that, that had, you know, a great budget. They, they had all the rules of engagement. They didn't, they were the last ones that really had to be inclusive or really had to remind everyone, hey, we're guests in this country, be nice, you know, didn't have to do that, he didn't want to, but man, he did it. And he was so inclusive, you know, all the elements that were part of the effort, he found the right person and brought them into the, you know, the, the synchronization call, we used to call it the O&I, the Operations and Intelligence Daily Call. And so, so the effects of his, his Prescience, you know, the way that he was able to find the right people and bring them into the mix and break down these traditional barriers to communication, especially amongst all these, you know, often secret units, and then start to bring in, you know, brought in the, the Brits, the Five Eyes countries, our traditional allies, and then bring in some others, bring in 
Why not bring in the Norwegians? Why not bring in the Dutch? Why not bring in the Lithuanians? You know, we're all in there together. Bring them in. And when you do that, it it cha- it's a game changer because it develops trust. It 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 shows respect to that sovereign nation who is contributing to this effort because they believe in it. And you just you know, General Stan McChrystal just invited them to their to the daily call to brief their area of specialization or, or whatever. That is a huge, huge thing that Stan did and Admiral Bill McRaven, you know, continued with in various ways. And, and, and along the same lines, there was a base in Iraq and Afghanistan were the main, were the main areas. And they, they, General McChrystal set up a special area for the host nation to, to have an inside perspective into what was going on. So like in Afghanistan, in this, you know, the middle of a very tightly controlled area, you would find 24-7 senior representatives from the Afghan army, Afghan intelligence service, and Afghan police participating in the discussions prior to the missions that that the nation, you know, the United States premier special operations units were conducting. And they would have access to a lot of information. And some people, you know, the security officers at first were a little bit <laughs> concerned about this. Yeah. But... To see it in action is to know that it worked really well. The, the, the deconfliction, so first of all, there's that level of trust, right? So they, these are senior officials from those respective units. They call back to their boss and say, hey, boss, I'm in, the, I'm in with General Admiral McRaven, General McChrystal. We're getting briefed on this mission. This is about to happen. What do you think? And, and of course, you know, operational security OPSEC was, was, a, was a concern sometimes, but it really, really worked. And the conversations that took place, the deconfliction that took place, the the prevention of loss of innocent life that that was able to take place because because the Afghans would know that that was the wrong thing, or don't don't you shouldn't go there because of this, or that roadblock. I'm going to call the guy at the roadblock to let you let your guys through because I know him. He's the he's the chief of police from district whatever, and I went to high school with him or something like that. And that could have been a really really bad situation otherwise. So things like that happened, and they had good sleeping arrangements in this plywood hotel. They had Afghan food brought in for them. They translated the briefs into Pashto or Dari for the for these guys, and it was quite remarkable. So. McChrystal McRaven did not, and the, and the staff did not have to do that, but they did it, and it really, really worked, and it really enabled uh, trust that had a number of second and third order positive effects that saved innocent lives, and made and made the prosecution of the non-innocent people that we were chasing more effective and more efficient through that. So, yeah. You know, I only met McRaven once, but what's what's something from him? You know, uniquely McRaven. McRaven. Is, yeah, he's a he's a really funny guy. You know, he, he's a journalism major as an undergrad in Texas, so he writes really well, and he's very prolific. His emails were were a thing of beauty. You know, to read whether <laughs> it was you know a, a retirement email a tribute to someone or whether it was a serious you know operational. Here, here's what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to do it. One, two, three, four, five. You know, you do this, you do that. It was a really what he was always had a gift with with words, and he had a remarkable gift with with people. He would remember things, remember dates, remember family members. He was not hung up on rank. He really, really, you know, sought out junior people who were specialists in their in their field to pick their brains and. That didn't always go over well with those junior people's bosses sometimes, but that's just the way he was. And I really liked watching him with his his wife, George Ann. They were a really nice, loving, funny couple. And 
He's a, he's a great father. He didn't talk too much about his kids, but his kids are extremely successful, wonderful young humans that, you know, so his legacy is not only a huge in the military special operations world, but he's brought a few incredible, raised a, raised a few incredible kids as well. He, he, the, the last thing I, I got to say about McRaven is that, you know, his last, he went down to SOCOM to be the commander of United States Special Operations Command. And one of his main priorities was building the global soft network. And he brought in a guy to do that for him, an Army Greenberry colonel named Stu Braden, to build the Global Soft Network. And Admiral Bill McRaven's idea of building the Global Soft Network was a very aggressive uh, plan, which involved things like bringing in, making a skiff within a skiff. A skiff is a very highly secure facility. And you know, if we're going to build this trust, if we're going to keep this trust going, the kind of trust that we had overseas with the French, with all of our NATO allies, we have got to do it right. So in Tampa, Florida, McDill Air Force Base, he built a skiff within a skiff, invited the French over, bring in your French top secret equipment, bring in your, you know, French, UK, all the, all the NATO allies, send us your best and brightest permanent, you know, PCS, your, your liaison officer from French Special Forces with your family, put them in schools in Tampa, you know, your wife will get a job, you'll, you'll have a three-year tour in Tampa, you're going to be in the skiff, you're going to have direct comms with your headquarters. And he did that. And he did it with great effectiveness. And when that happened in the United States, there were a few countries that maybe we were having, the United States was having challenges with getting our liaison officer into, into the headquarters, you know, into the place that really mattered. And sure enough, you know, we started having these, these solos, special operations liaison officers deployed for on a, on a permanent change of station assignment into the right place to get things done into the host nation special forces. And it maybe has atrophied a little bit. I'm not, I'm not as close to it as I, as I used to, but when I saw it up and running, when they commissioned the, you know, the, the, special, the International Special Operations Organization, J3I is, is kind of what they, they called it. It was incredible to watch the, the camaraderie and the, you know, the combustion of the multinational force that was down there. And I can tell you that more than once, it paid dividends in real world uh, scenarios, World War conflicts that took place. You know, a good example would be West Africa, where the French have years and years and years of experience. A lot of people on the ground there. U.S. does can't nearly keep up with what's going on in West Africa the way the French can. And here they are with their top secret video VTC system and you know the classified communication systems in Tampa, where you know U.S. and other allies are planning you know a mission to to do whatever in in, in West Africa. So. That may have happened otherwise if if McRaven had set that up, but I don't think it would have happened nearly as smoothly or nearly as efficiently and quickly, that type of collaboration in real world planning events. So I really liked watching McRaven build the global soft network. You know, how interesting in both of those last stories, this idea of going first, like the guts to go first when there's no guarantee it'll be reciprocated. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, you know, all the guys I just mentioned that, you know, the two, the two guys from my younger days and then McChrystal McCraven, 
I would say that all of them had that ability to, sometimes people would call it moral courage. Sometimes it would be called, you know, believing in yourself or believing that you're, you're right at, at no matter what the cost. They, ha- they have that quality because, you know, just, you know, bringing, bringing Afghans into the middle of this top secret base and giving them Afghan food and letting them see live predator feeds of stuff that's going on. That was not, that was no small deal. That was a big deal. And they had to, you know, there were massive, you know, waivers and approvals and people that said, no, I disagree and things like that, I'm sure. But they got it done. And the same thing with, you know, the skiff inside the skiff and down in Tampa. Where Craven, you know, Stu Braden, the colonel that I mentioned that was in charge of it said, sir, having a hard time with it. Stu, tell me who to send the email to. Tell me who to call, right? You know, and we'll, we'll get it done. Don't worry. It's not a problem. Stu, I need you to go to go to the Pentagon and find $50 million for, got it. And, and you know, they would just get it done because they believed in it and they knew they knew it was the right thing. So interesting how those stories also have such strong elements of respect. You know, this idea of, you know, if if you're the French, if you're the Norwegians, whoever, like the idea of having your own, you know, truly private way to communicate back home. Like it's one thing yeah. to be included. And it's one thing for it's like one, and it's another thing of trust for us to like intentionally give you something that is completely secure that we are both acknowledging. I can't, there's no way for me to have, have any idea what you're saying to your headquarters. Yeah. Like what a, what an expression of trust, right? It's an expression of trust. And it's, it's just, it's an expression of respect, you know, like McRaven had the ability to, I think, to put himself in the shoes of, you know, the Norwegian, the commander of the Norwegian special forces. Right. And here he was, here we were, the Americans thinking, you know, sometimes through no fault of our own because we don't, we don't know any better. We have such good gear, such good budgets. We think we're the smartest. We have, the, you know, this eye-watering intelligence capability. But, you know, you get on the ground somewhere and you, you just don't, you're not the right, you don't know everything. And the people like, you know, the Norwegians, for example, they, sometimes they know a lot more. And you, so you're in a situation and the Norwegian guy who knows a lot more about what's going on is knocking on the door and some American, well-intentioned American Intel officer or security officer or somebody says, sorry, sorry, you can't come in here. We're briefing the, we're briefing the, you know, the, the secret operation, the secret operation that the Norwegians pretty much, you know, I've been working for the last six months and they know everything about. So sometimes, so McCraven was able to see that and see that those nuances and say, come on guys, you know, look, look at what you're saying here, bring, bring the Norwegian dude in and have him brief and, or you know, more, the more extreme versions would bring, bring the Afghan intelligence guy in, show him, show him the analyst notebook representation of this H, you know, this high value individual that we're going after tonight, sir, sir, we can't do that. That's TS, you know, well, take the TS off of it or take, take the TS part out and show him this thing and see if he agrees. And McCraven was able to see in this, and, and by extension, a lot of his staff and the people that he surrounded, him, surrounded himself with were able to see that, see how, so, see how important that was and get over some of our own, you know, self-imposed restrictions when, when, when they were, when they were holding us up. You know, I'll never forget the other, you know, there, there was, as you can imagine, there were a number of holding cells in, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And some of them were fairly, fairly, fairly sensitive areas where didn't want a lot of people to come in. But I'll never forget when McChrystal brought in Afghan, senior Afghan army officials into this one holding cell and, and showed him everything pretty much and said, listen, we need your help. We do not have enough Pash- native Pashtu speakers to translate all this stuff and to do all this exploitation on the devices we're getting. 
And again, unbelievable amount of trust was built in that, you know, and, and the, the collaboration that occurred from little things like that was quite a big deal. Yeah. So McRaven had, had a great, and McChrystal and, you know, by extension, their staffs had a really good ability to put themselves in the, in the shoes of the other person and make decisions that were thoughtful and were respectful and developed a huge amount of trust and collaboration. Yeah. You put great examples. You know, one thing one thing that I was thinking a little bit about is, you know, there's a number of high speed units out there, you know, and we've we've had some folks from some other, you know, highly skilled soft organizations on the show. But I think in the years I got to hang out with you guys, Coronado or other places, I, I found a camaraderie, like the brotherhood aspect, like the 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 team feeling, like don't get me wrong. The other units, those guys love each other and they are like brothers and they've bled together and they've had all these things. Right. But I did find something special with you guys of this, like, I don't know, there's a special feeling with the, with the way you guys live the word team. Can you talk about that at all? Um, absolutely. I, I, I share that, you know, not having been in the 75th Ranger Regiment or been a, been through the SF Special Forces Q course in, in an Army Green Beret or in the Air Force special operations, but I've worked closely with, with all of those units. So I have gotten a window, a fairly close window into their worlds. And I, and I would agree that the work hard, play hard, camaraderie, closeness in the units that I've been in, in the Navy has been quite unparalleled. I, part of it is, even though the training, you know, all the, the basic pipeline training for, for most of the elite special forces is combined officers and enlisted the there's something about the intimacy of buds training and the lack at least when i went through the lack of barrier between officers and enlisted at least in the, in the basic training that really brings you close together and the crazy things that happen you know sometimes death defying or just kind of on the edge of things that happen in training and then and then when you're deployed really are our bonding moments something about in, in you know i've been stationed both in coronado and in virginia beach with with the guys something about going to work in the morning and doing you know pt first thing you do is you know you come to work and usually in, or at least i did in, in shorts and and running shoes or boots and you would do a run swim run or an obstacle course or a monster mash or before you know every day of the week before you started work and that is a really, that's something that builds camaraderie. And there's always a sense of humor. There's always goofing around, you know, and good natured competition and just a lot of funny stuff going on all the time. And then you work really hard for a while. And then maybe, you know, Friday afternoon, you have a, have a beer with the guys and play some volleyball or go surfing or something like that. So there's a lot of things outside of the hardcore training where you're just hanging out together, having fun. And then we were, on the road a lot when we weren't deployed doing training. So we would be skydiving in Arizona. We'd be doing desert training out in near the Mexican border in Southern California. We'd be doing cold weather training in Kodiak, Alaska. And again, every time, you know, you're just like in close quarters doing crazy things, you know, a lot of times in the water, freezing your ass off, you know, pushing it to the envelope and, and looking around you and all the guys are going through it right with you. No, you know, no dead weight. Everyone's kind of happy to be there. You know, nobody's come. If anybody complains, you know, they'll, they'll get a lot of, uh, a lot of grief from, from everybody. So it's, 
it's the, the circumstances of the training and the circumstances of the rhythm of life that you have when you're training and not training is very conducive to building uh, a ridiculous amount of, of camaraderie. So I think that's you know, part of it. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously I have drastically less experience than you do, but my observations, you know, like everything you're saying resonates with my observations of you guys. It makes me think one of our friends in common also brought up the idea of a swim buddy, like, Hey, this guy, like, in many ways, he, he expressed that you, you, can, you can really feel like your life is in their hands because mm-hmm. of the kind of places that the kind of places you're swimming and the, <laughs> the lack of light and the other things going on. He yeah. felt like that was another one of like, man, it's really just the two of you sometimes. Yeah. And- yeah. I think that's a good, a good example. You know, of course, some army, you know, Green Braves do nighttime diving, Air Force guys do, but Generally speaking, SEALs, and especially SEALs that are in the SDV teams, do a lot of time underwater in the dark, right? So <laughs> That's funny. This is, a, this is a former Team 4 guy, so yeah. I didn't thought about him his SDV time impacting that, but yeah. Well, if, if yeah, SDV is a, is a whole other level of uh, frog and, and for people activity. who don't know SDV, well, I guess we should stop there. What, what does it yeah. stand for? Yes, SDV is an acronym for SEAL Delivery Vehicle. Some people would say swimmer delivery vehicle, but I think seal delivery vehicle is, I think, the right one. It's a, like a mini submarine. It's, a, it's an enclosed, wet submersible. However, there are some dry submersibles now coming out. But it's a, you know, they, they do, they, they usually operate from a submarine, a shell, a, something called a dry deck shelter on the back of a U.S. Navy submarine. And they have a fairly long duration and they can do, they can go pretty good distances underwater and do all kinds of different things underwater without, without coming up if they don't want to. And it, it could be in cold water, it could be in warm water, but it is a serious mission. And, an, and I'm glad we don't read much about what they're doing, but that's, that's a serious SEAL mission that very few countries can pull off. But being underwater at night, you know, in, in, t- in a team of two with your, your swim buddy or your dive buddy, when you can't see anything, all you can see is maybe the, you know, your compass and your depth gauge and the, the stopwatch to time to figure out how long before you turn, but you know, the guy is there. And sometimes you feel him squeeze your arm to tell you, you know, two minutes out, one minute out or something like that, or tap you when you're ready to turn or different signals. But otherwise you would never know anything is going on there and you just trust, trust him. And if he has a problem, you're going to help him. If you have a problem, he helps you. You lose a fin, keep going. Lose both fins, keep going. Lose your mask, keep going. You know, we would always joke around, you know, just, just keep going no matter what happens. But yeah, so diving underwater at night is, is a good one. Good example, I think. You know, I was telling you a little bit before the show started, that same guy, I had taken him with me to team teach when the Nigerian Special Operations Command was getting stood up and McRaven had, a, had assigned this uh, Marine to, to run this almost kind of like an innovation team, a force recon guy. And so it was, it was an SF guy, it was an Islamic law specialist, and then me and, and that you know 25-year mm-hmm. teams guy that we were talking about before. We were over there and we were just talking about different folks that he had respect for and, and maybe some that not so much. And, and your name came up and he had very similar things to say about you as our friend who introduced us, you know, Amy Sadegzade, who, you know, after, after leaving full-time in the Naval Special Warfare, she came and worked for me. And, and really influenced me. I mean, she, she taught me your community. She taught me how, what, what to do, what not to do, and, and uh, had a big influence on me. But she said very same things about that you kind of have a reputation and, and certainly a soft spot in both of their hearts of 
you have a different way of being kind of a people collector and you're kind of like magnetic and, and like, they both feel like you cared about people maybe more so than, than others in the DOD and, and that you had really seen who they were as a person and tried to do by, right by them and tried to invite them into cool things. And that when you did need something and you were asking them, Hey, will you switch and come over to this, that you're like the guy they would do that for. Do you have any thoughts about your personal philosophy that, that engendered that kind of loyalty? Well, that's nice to hear that they remember me fondly. You know, the two people that you mentioned, of course, I remember very well my interactions with them. And to me, both of them were just super strong performers. And they were at times in their lives when I thought I, I might be able to help them. Just to, you know, maybe it was just a conversation or just some advice. In Amy's case, you know, I, I, I think she thinks I was just, I was partially responsible for helping her, you know, go to the academy and do these other things. I don't, she did it all on her own, but maybe the, but she, she certainly was worthy and deserving of, of all the time that I could give her because she was so earnest and passionate and such a good person, a person of good character and upstanding character. And the other guy, you know, in a different way, similarly had so many great things to offer. You know, if I, if I can help that, it's, I feel like it's my responsibility to do that. I think the first time that really I saw the benefits of some version of that was when we were in, in Desert Shield. You know, we got plopped in, in Saudi Arabia and none of us had, you know, we were, we were headed to West, we were headed to Philippines and we got diverted over to Saudi Arabia for the, you know, what was the beginning of a seven month deployment. Didn't know any, didn't speak any Arabic, didn't have any Arabic speakers with us, didn't know anything about Islam. You know, I didn't do any desert training. It was, it was pretty, in hindsight, pretty interesting. However, we quickly deployed up to the border of Kuwait with the Saudis. And I quickly discovered that some of these Saudi dudes, you know, in their country who were, who were deathly afraid of, you know, Saddam Hussein coming across the border and attacking their families the way he had attacked the Kuwaitis. They had a lot to offer. So, so, so I, I thought it was important to learn, learn their language, learn about what their lives were like. You know, this was in 1990s, you know, so we sat in this, in these tents up on the border of between Saudi Arabia and Kuwait with a bunch of other SEALs and a bunch of Saudi Royal Navy, Saudi Special Forces guys talking about culture, language, religion, dating girls, you know, in Saudi Arabia, which was, so we, we developed a lot of trust and that paid huge dividends over the coming months because we, we, in our very small group of guys up and down the East coast of Saudi Arabia, we would, we would, we would know the pleasantries. We'd know Tarek Mohammed al Qadu Min Mecca. And they'd say, Oh, you know, Tarek, come on through the checkpoint, you know, oh, get up here. You guys are front of the line. You know, we'd, we'd have these feasts and we'd have, so, so everyone has a story, you know, everyone has a, something to offer. And during, you know, our, our journeys through life, it's really important to help those people along the way. I can't say enough about, you know, Amy and what she's blossomed into. And the other guy that you mentioned, you know, he's, he's a superstar in, in a lot of things that he does. And he, you know, he's such a, an interesting <laughs> study. You know, he's another non-standard guy, I would say. And I, you know, he's quite remarkable. So I got all the time in the world for, for people like that. And that, and it doesn't matter if they're, 
seals or men or women or you know americans yeah. i love the non-us special forces who are cut from the same cloth you know as as the guys same dna you know as as american seals or special special operations guys they're all over the world and we run into them all the time so they just weren't born in the united states they were born in 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 wherever country they come but they're the same they have the same passion the same fortitude and, and yeah. it's wonderful to talk to those guys too you know it's funny i'm sure i drove amy nuts you know because i'm all over the place and i want to do a million things and she's like she's very good at doing the right thing at the right time and yeah and but she's just so passionate like she just leads with her heart you know what i mean like yeah. Where she she's, you know, run the military practice for the Arbinger Institute. I'm sure she's killing it because she just, yeah, man, she just believes all the way. And and no wonder that's magnetic. Right. Yeah. You know, really. it really had a big influence on me. You know, I had I had mentioned to you, I think we were having lunch at Coronado and I mentioned to you that I'd been studying James Stockdale more and some of his philosophies. And you you really set me on this path and got me a copy of the let assessment and what's going on at the Institute and followed up with me and, and brought it up over the years and stuff. And that, that not exaggerating kind of changed my life. I, I really studied the Stoics and all the years since then. And, you know, now that's cool back then nobody cared. Right. But yeah. in addition to the, you know, the kind of materials we were looking at at that time, that stuff really, I don't know, it had a huge impact on me. So this is, this is a big thank you for me to you for that. But you really seem like a student of leadership. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? Well, I have a long way to go, I think, but it, I think it w- would be accurate to say that I really am drawn to people who are good leaders, ethical leaders, people who are of high character. And you mentioned the Stoics and you mentioned James Stockdale. He, you know, he used to live in Coronado and he would always show up. He would usually show up at the Bud's graduations with his wife, Sybil, and he lived not far from where I live. So I got a chance to see him every once in a while. And I think he, you know, the, the, the leadership uh, traits that he exuded very quietly are the type of thing that I think are, are very effective and are very enduring when it comes to good leadership. There are, there are many types of good leadership, many different ways of, of expressing, many different ways of inspiring people. For me personally, the, the, the traits that work best are those like the ones that, of the people that we've discussed a certain amount of humility, a certain amount of vulnerability, you know, leading with your heart and not, and having the moral courage to really do what you think is correct in the face of great opposition and the timeless lessons that are found in, in this, in Stoic philosophy, the kind of thing that Admiral Stockdale wrote about when he was a student at Stanford from people like Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or Seneca or a bunch of others capture in many ways the essence of good leadership parts of parts of it at least so i think that's pretty cool and i do have a long way to go but i still find myself referring to some of the you know like for example the meditations of marcus aurelius i think has a lot of really nice lessons and things to think about in in our in our day-to-day life in 2020 in this crazy world we live in they they still to me, they still work quite well. And oftentimes it applies to, to leadership and uh, talking to people or trying to help people as well. Yeah. Well, and for anybody not familiar, he was the senior most, he was, he was the most senior officer that was shot down in Vietnam and in prisoner war camps. And he's got great books uh, for sure. I would check out the uh, thoughts of a philosophical fighter pilot, but anything he wrote is great. Yeah, um, I would agree. 
I was, you know, at the Naval Academy, they, they have a, a place there called the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership, I think is the right name for it. But they, they've, they've really placed a premium and a, and, a, and a focus on ethical leadership development and training named after Stockdale. It's nice. Yeah. Well, you've had serious success since leaving the Navy as well. Any thoughts about just a lesson learned as global physical, you know, head of global facility, head of global physical security for J.P. Morgan Chase? Well, yeah, I, I had a great time working at J.P. Morgan. The transition was, you know, the transition isn't always easy to go from the military, especially some of the special operations units, perhaps into corporate America at J.P. Morgan Chase. However, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't that bad because, you know, you have to, you have to act a little bit differently. Maybe you speak a little bit differently. Sometimes you have to learn about a lot of things that you didn't care, didn't focus on before. Like, you know, a lot of dealing with a lot of lawyers, dealing with oversight and control, compliance, risk, you know, a, a lot of things like that. However, at the end of the day and at, you know, you're still dealing with people, you're still, you still have a team, you know, I, I had a global team of people and they're, you know, you know, they didn't all go through buds with me, but they're all the same. You know, they, they all have, we all share universal values and we're all trying to do the right thing. They respond well to frequent communication. They respond well to, you know, praising in public, disciplining in private, you know, they really respond well to the, to the elements that, you know, Fussell talked about in team of teams, you know, when you, you know, that that guy in the Philippines is the expert on, you know, access control devices, bring them into the daily call and have them brief, you know, the, you know, some of the head guys on it or something like that. So that kind of thing was completely channeled out of, you know, McChrystal's O&I briefing and it, and it worked so well. And then visit them, you know, you know, you hear this, you might hear this phrase in the military leadership by walking around, right? So it was a little bit painful sometimes to go to Hong Kong, Manila, Singapore, but, and then, you know, try to come up on the meetings in New York City, you know, 12 hours out, but it was so worth it. And when you take the time to visit and, and know, maybe you're the first person that's ever visited from New York to down in Cebu, Philippines, and you talk to some young man or some young woman who's in the Philippines working for JP Morgan Chase security department and you and you know the pleasantries in Tagalog or Cebuano or one of the Philippine dialects from being in the Navy that that's so cool to them and they 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 it makes such a difference and so that type of activity that type of behavior translates extremely well when it comes to leading people or inspiring people or treating people with respect or trying to see the world through their eyes in their lives when they are doing whatever they're doing it makes such a difference and it's worth the time so i tried to i tried to do a lot of that when i was at in new york city at jp morgan with that team and and i'd like to say that i did a good job of of a lot of that. So <laughs> that's great. That's nice. Listen, I know we've only got another minute here, but but tell us about ClearSpeed and, and being an advisor over there. Yeah. Yeah. ClearSpeed is an amazing company. The CEO is a guy named Alex Martin. He he went to the Naval Academy and served in the Marine Corps. He's still in the Marine Reserves, Marine Corps Reserves, Force Reconnaissance Officer. They have a, a voice technology that analyzes the human voice and it measures the sub-audible neuromuscular reaction that humans have when they when they decide if they are going to utter a a, a non-truth or something that is deceptive or something that is 
not altogether truthful because there's a reaction that takes place in the body when, when that, in that momentary span of time, when you decide whether you're going to answer truthfully or not, or somebody, and they can do this in any language, in any dialect to yes or no questions. So it, as you can imagine, the use cases are, are numerous. If you wanted to screen a bunch of foreign people to guard an embassy, you wanted to screen a bunch of prospective Afghan army recruits, and you had to do a lot of them, and all you had at your disposal was very rudimentary things to investigate, or you had to pay a lot of money for some local company to out- outsource this investigation, it could take a long time, and the accuracy is is suboptimal. But if you could give them a 10-question interview over the phone or in person, yes or no questions, in Pashto, in Dari, in whatever language, and you could very quickly determine that this individual was needs to be examined further on questions four and seven, but otherwise they're pretty good to go. And you could quickly determine that 700 out of these thousand people don't need to worry about them. Focus on these 300. That is going to save you a lot of time. And the accuracy is extreme. So far, the results are extremely impressive. The false positives are, are easily dealt with so far, not a problem. And the use cases are, are, Incredible, I think. So so I'm very excited about not just the technology that the ClearSpeed is leveraging, but the team that they have running it and working with the government and, and civilian entities is, is quite high speed as well. So I think it's something to keep your eye on in the future. You're going you're gonna to hear about it without question, I would say. Well, A, I appreciate the way you've supported child rescue and our, our efforts trying to combat child trafficking. So thank you again for that. And, and thanks for taking the time for this. This has been great. Jess, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye, everyone.